Well, I want to personally invite you all next Sunday evening, week from tonight, for our night of worship, our Christmas night of worship. We uh, normally every year we have a uh, an adult choir do a Christmas musical or a cantata, uh, and our our desire usually is to. Uh, have you all invite your family and your friends to that, uh, mostly around Christmas time. People don't mind going to church and, and hearing music and all, but we uh, have always wanted to include the gospel and invite people to come to Christ and, and all. And uh, this would be no different, uh, except that uh, what we desired to do this time was to have the choir and the worship team work together uh, doing the songs, some of the songs of the season, but primarily to lead the congregation in a time of worship as we do periodically through the year, uh, having nights of worship, times where we just come together and we lift up a number of songs of praise to God. Uh, we take time to hear God's word. We also uh, use the time to lift up the needs that you may have, have prayer available, and the pastors and elders uh, here praying. And, 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 you know, we've seen God do great and wonderful things through times like that. So uh, we wanted this one to be a very special one in that we wanted to have you invite your family, friends, and neighbors to come and to hear the gospel and, and to come to Christ and to come to the understanding of what the real reason for Christ coming to this earth was and what it is for us today. So... Just wanted to put that invitation out to all of you. Would you all this morning turn to Genesis chapter 11? Two years ago, on January of 2010, we began our studies in the book of Genesis. And I had mentioned that uh, we were going to spend a considerable amount of time in the first 11 chapters because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most criticized and the most attacked chapters of the Bible uh, by the evolutionary, secular, humanistic, uh, philosophical world, as well as the liberal theolo uh, theological world as well. So uh, we have uh, taken a lot of time to study Creation as God's Word teaches it, uh, the origin of sin in chapter 3 of Genesis, moving on to the building up of nations and all the flood, of course, don't want to forget that, looking at things from scientific perspectives uh, in contrast to what is still a theory of evolution and, and realizing that the Word of God is, uh, is very clear in what it says about how things came to be. But now, as we've seen the the um, growth of nations come out of the ark uh, from the three sons of of Noah, it brings us now to really the end of of our study of these eleven chapters. And I hope and pray that as we prepare to begin our very uh, 
in not, not so much in-depth study, but a, a kind of a moving uh, through, the, uh, uh, through the narrative of chapters 12 on to the end of, of Genesis, uh, starting that in January, that, uh, uh, that we've taken a considerable amount of meat out of this particular uh, passage of Scripture, which is Genesis 1 through 11. So we're going to conclude that today. Last week we we began looking at this passage from verse 10 through the end, but we didn't read verses 10 through 26. I make it of great importance that we read God's Word, even if there's a lot of names that we can't pronounce. It's important to read it because God's Word is to be known and read and heard, and and so we're going to do that. But uh, last week I did explain verses 10 through 26. I explained it from the standpoint that as you look at all of these names, nothing is said or added to the names other than the fact that one person begat another and the descendants of Shem are all mentioned here all the way down to Abraham and his brothers. What it told us about this particular passage was that they had uh, nothing specifically stated about them That was spiritual. And so we come to the understanding that by the time we get to Abraham, those of the line of Shem, Noah, Shem, down to Abraham, have pretty much come back into the world, much as the line of Seth did up to the time of the flood. In other words, man showed the corruption of his heart again even the promised line. With that in mind, let me read the names to you, verses 10 and following down through 26. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Salah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Salah 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. And Salah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and 30 years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Serug. And Reu lived after he begat Serug 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Serug lived thirty years and begat Nahor. And Serug lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Let me add one verse of scripture from the Gospel of Luke. A statement that Jesus made at the end of a parable that he had given of a persistent widow He said at the end of this verse, verse 8 of Luke 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith 
on the earth. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. As we pointed out last time concerning this passage in Genesis 11, man failed God again. Just as there had been a spiritual decline in the line of Seth up until the time of Noah and the flood, so there was a spiritual decline even in the godly line of Shem. A decline so great that God changed His method of dealing with man, at least from our perspective. One thing that we know for sure from the Scriptures is God doesn't change His mind. But the perspective, from our perspective, we see that He changes His ways of dealing with man. And what I mean by that is that God moved away from dealing with the human race as a whole, and He chose one man, Abraham, and created a whole new race of people through him, a people through whom he could send the promised seed into the world. So this passage deals with Shem, the son of Noah, the son chosen to carry on the godly seed. Now I must say that we have to go all the way back from Shem to Noah, Noah all the way back to Seth, which takes us all the way back to Adam. So the line continues. But... Along the way, even the people of the godly line have fallen. They have forgotten God. They have chosen, in essence, not to remember God. And then they have chosen to be rebellious toward God. So, if you remember the prophecy of Noah concerning Shem, in Genesis 9, verse 26, it says, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now I want you to take note that God was the one to be blessed, not Shem and his descendants. At least not directly. The name of God was to be blessed through Shem and his descendants, through what God was going to do through them. And there were two things that God was going to do through them. First of all, He was providing the line through which the promised Savior was to come. And secondly, He was providing the line through which the knowledge of God was to be kept before the minds of men. Now that didn't happen after the flood. When we talked about the nations, as, as, as the uh, nations were beginning to form, as Shem, Ham, and Japheth went out into the world... They went forth, and we made a very strong claim of this, that as they went out, by generation, they began to forget God. And they they forgot the blessings of God that I'm sure that Noah had given to his sons to pass on. So God, again, through this line, was providing the line through which the promised seed or the promised Savior was to come. And then the line for which uh, the knowledge of God was to be kept. Now, nothing whatsoever is said about Shem or his immediate descendants blessing God, only that their God would be blessed. But what we have seen in this genealogy here in chapter 11 is a significant spiritual decline in his descendants, a spiritual corruption that led the most immediate of Abram's family or Abraham's family into the worship of idols. Now, we pointed this out last week, and I just want to bring up for a point of review uh, Joshua 24, verse 2, and Joshua 24, verse 15. Because here, as we read last time, uh, Joshua points out 
the uh, worship of other gods by the line of Shem. It says, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, which is actually the river Euphrates, but your father dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. When it says they served other gods, that means Terah and his sons served other gods. That includes Abraham. As Abram, he was a uh, he was an idol worshiper. Later on in verse 15, when, when uh, Joshua makes that grand statement of faith, when he says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the river or the God, gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you'll notice again that he says, Whether the gods which your fathers served, speaking of Terah, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and their descendants. And while the focus of attention in our previous study was Abram's deal or delay, I should say, leading to his devotion toward his creator, we talked about that 15 to 25 year delay in Haran. Before we believe that Abram, Abram received that call again to move from Haran to, uh, to Canaan, and we saw how clearly that was in the scriptures when he goes finally to, de, uh, to his devotion toward his creator, the living and true God, by following in the footsteps of faith, now we need to take a step back for just a moment to focus our attention upon the contrast to, Ab, uh, to Abram or Abram, and that is his father Terah. Terah serves as a contrast to Abram's faith. Take, for example, if you go now on now reading from verse 26 through verse 32 of Genesis 11. It says, And Terah lived seventy years, and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. Lot is mentioned here because he's going to play a significant role when he is with Abraham, but we won't deal with that today. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah, notice this, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran's, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, as this passage is significant in that it launches for us the movement of God from dealing with a human race as a whole to dealing with one man, Abram, and his descendants, the race of people who were to be born to him, which was the Hebrew nation, the Jews or Israel. It is also significant in presenting to us the conditions from which Abram would be called. What were the conditions out of which Abraham was called by God. The human race had corrupted itself again, including the promised line, following after the world and its secularism. 
You know, this is something that we need to pay very close attention to because it's taking place even today. We are living in a world that is rapidly becoming more and more secular in its ways. More and more focused on the human element. More and more focused on human accomplishment, human achievement, human success without the presence of God, the Creator. That is secularism. And the human race at, at, at even Abram's time, they were following after that particular secularism. They had fallen into its pleasures. They had fallen into its possessions and its fame and its honor and its glory and its power. But as we learned about Babel, it wasn't just secularism. It was following after also the man conceived religions of the world. Babel became the, the birthplace of all false religions. And all false gods, the idols and and gods created by the ideas and imaginations of men that Paul pointed out very clearly as we read last week from Romans chapter 1. So if the godly line was to be saved, if the promised seed was to be sent into the world, God himself would have to intervene and move upon the scene of history, intervene out of pure mercy and grace. That's how God intervenes in our lives. Through mercy and through grace. God would have to overcome his own grief and hurt over man's sin and act completely on his own. He, he would have to reach down upon and choose a, a man, not because the man deserved it or merited it, but because God loved man and wanted to save mankind. That is God's unmerited favor. That is God's amazing grace. God would have to choose a man and present to him the promised seed and the promised land. Not so much the land of Canaan, but heaven. And challenge that man to follow him. And that man was Abraham. And so in a very real sense, there would be no Christmas without Abraham. Terah, the father of Abraham, Abram at this point, provides not only the contrast to his son's faith, but the conditions from which Abram must prevail. His influence upon his sons was a great influence. Remember that Terah was of the promised line. The line of people God had chosen to bear the promised seed, the Savior of the world. And of all the people upon earth, those who were in the promised line should have lived godly lives. They should have lived godly lives. I guess you can say they should have known better. Because the word of God should have been passed down from Shem all the way to Abraham. But it wasn't. To some extent it reminds us of where we are today. Where we've come from 
and what we are to be now as the children of God. The Apostle Paul, in in his letter to Titus, provides for us an insightful contrast from what we were to what we are to be in Christ. So if you will, turn to Titus chapter 2. And look at these passages for just a moment, because we're going to look at something in two and in chapter two and, and, and then in chapter three as well. But Paul says very clearly in verse 11 of chapter two, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. And this, of course, is reminding us of the fact that Jesus Christ has come to this earth. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now we have to start there. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That is where we are to be as believers in Jesus Christ today. Living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. No longer living in ungodliness as, as, as before mentioned. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We're no longer to live in those particular things. Secondly, we are to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So we're not only to be living soberly, righteously, and, just, and, and, uh, and, and uh, godly, we are also to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. That means our focus does not always just need to be here on the earth as to how it applies to us. But our focus is to continue to look for the completion of the life that God has given us for eternity. And then in verse 14 it says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. In other words, cleanse us and redeem us, buy us back from sin and iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Therefore, there is to be an an exhibition of the life of Christ in us by the things that we do outwardly in this life. Not to build ourselves up, but actually to give glory to God. So we're to live totally differently than what we did before we were believers. When you go on into chapter uh, 3 and verses 1 through 8, Paul says, put them in mind, uh, he's, uh, he's saying to Titus, who is uh, to be the pastor or you know, the elder in charge of those that are in, in the church in, in Crete. He says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. What he's saying is, at one time we were foolish, At one time we were disobedient and deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The very attitude of the world. The very attitude of a person living without God and without Christ in his life. But notice verse 4, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Jesus again, coming into this world. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. He goes on to say, And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, 
that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. The good works that come out of a life of, uh, of faith, out of a life of salvation, no longer living in ungodliness and worldly lusts, but living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the point of all of that is, that as that applied in, 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 in uh, Abram's time, and it applied in Paul's time, it applies in our time. Those of the promised line should have followed God and been dynamic testimonies before an ungodly world. As we are to be a testimony and a witness of Christ in our lives toward an ungodly world. For an ungodly world. In fact, this was one of the primary reasons the Lord had chosen them. To be witnesses. And I mean the line that uh, the Messiah was to come. They were to be witnesses of the only true and living God. But what happened? The world became more of an influence upon them than they were an influence of God for the world. Think about that for just a moment. And let me repeat that thought. That the world became more of an influence upon them. The line, the godly line of Seth. The world became more of an influence upon them than they were an influence of God for the world. That's tragic. And tragically, this was true of Terah. The father of Abram or Abraham. His influence on Haran, the father of Lot, would lead to a carnal and worldly grandson. Lot was worldly. He was a carnal man. But although he, he would eventually believe in God through his uncle Abram's influence and example, nonetheless, he exhibited many fleshly traits and We'll talk more about Lot later. So think about the influence then of Terah to his sons. And then I want you to consider the proximity of Ur of the Chaldees to Babylon for just a moment. Consider the proximity. And, and let me say that uh, don't, don't, be, don't be fooled by the, the, the mileages that I'm going to give you here because it may seem like it's a long way from there, but... Remember that uh, the plains of Shinar was, was the area where the uh, city-states of uh, Nimrod were built uh, there in Babel, surrounding a number of city-states, Nineveh in, in, in another particular area. The whole area of the plains of Shinar and of the Mesopotamian Valley and Euphrates Valley was taken over by this particular worldly culture. So 120 to 140 miles from there is pretty much pretty close as well. So this was the original home of Terah, Ur of the Chaldees. And it was a city that was located about 120 to 140 miles south of Babylon, right above the Persian Gulf in the land known as Southern Mesopotamia. Ur, in fact, was a great city. Archaeologically, it, it, it was finally discovered uh, and they have excavated the remains of Ur. And what they have found was, that it shows that it was a city of culture. It was a city of education. It had, uh, they found things that, uh, that said that uh, they had the latest mathematical tables, the dictionaries uh, of their languages, and the study books of the students. These things were found 
in Ur. It was a city of architecture with the finest and innovative buildings and housing. You know, they had a, an interesting thing that when they excavated some of the homes uh, in Ur of the Chaldees, that they, they found uh, what they believed to be uh, systems for air conditioning and systems for plumbing uh, that uh, were far beyond what uh, uh, were in other cultures at the time. So we would think, well, this was an advanced civilization, but at the same time, it was a city of great idolatry with a large temple built for the worship of the moon god Ur. Yes, Ur of the Chaldees was named after the moon god that they worshipped. This was another influence of Terah upon his children. So listen, parents, Parents can either be influences for good upon their children, or else they could be evil influences. And I would think that most of us here would say, well, I, you know, I certainly don't want to be an evil influence upon my children. But there are times when if we do not address certain issues in their lives and not say anything about those issues, are we not at the same time allowing them to be doing things that they ought not to do as children? So sometimes we may unknowingly be an evil influence upon our children for not exhibiting the kind of correction and love that we're to be giving them based upon the truth of the Word of God. And there are a lot of evil influences in the, in the scriptures uh, for children. For, for example, there's a, there was a king in Israel when the nation of Israel was divided into two, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, they had a king named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah actually was from the south, but he, they, they, they made him king in the north. All the kings of the northern kingdom, all of them were evil, every one of them. In the south, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings. But in the north, all of the kings were bad. All of the kings were evil. Let me, let me read just a little bit about this and notice the influence. First Kings two, uh, 22, First Kings 22, verse 51. It says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Every influence that Ahaziah had was an evil influence. His father, his mother, and Jeroboam. Notice in 50, verse 53 it says, For he served Baal and worshipped him. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. So he was worshipping a God that found that, that we know the roots of this God was in Babel. In Babylon. For all false religions were born in Babylon. But even still, listen to Second Chronicles 22, verses 1 through 4. The inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his young son, king in his stead. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had slain on the eldest. So Ahaziah, the son of Jeho- Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Uh, don't be confused by the different names of who he was a son of. Uh, it's just, you know, includes ancestors and all that. No, we're not worried about that for now. Verse 2 says, 40 and 2 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign and he reigned one year in Jerusalem his mother's name was uh, also was Ataliah the daughter of Omri 
He also walked, and this is the verse you want to see. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Now that's an outright evil influence. His mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. I mean, that's just one example of many in the scriptures. But we also know that a parent can have a good and godly influence on his children. As a matter of fact, David was a great example and influence for his children. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wasn't David, didn't David fall and sin greatly? He did. Also remember, David repented. And David was forgiven by God. And although he had to face certain consequences that later on were affected, affecting his own family. Nonetheless, one thing we know about David is for sure. He remained faithful to God. He never bowed his knee to an idol. And that is something that God had, you know, took greatly into consideration in the life of David. But here's how David was a godly influence. In 1 Kings 9 verses 4 and 5, where God is addressing Solomon, it says, And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and by the way, because of David, God has, kept, God has kept that promise. Now in Second Chronicles 17, verses 3 and 4, dealing with the king that was reigning at the same time as Ahaziah. What is that guy's name? It's hard to pronounce. Ahaziah, that's what I meant to say. Same, at the same time, notice what it says about Jehoshaphat. And Second Chronicles 17, 3 and 4. Uh, and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David. Now, not, not his direct father, but, you know, his, his ancestor, the, the father of, of that line. He says, he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Baalim, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. So here at the very same time was the contrast to somebody who was following wicked influences. He was following a godly influence. And that influence was David. The Lord commands parents today to set a godly example before their children. Our children are to be given godly examples. Not just a good example, a godly example. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7. It says, and thou shalt teach them diligently. What is that? The word of God, the words of God are to be taught to our children. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. At all times are we to give our children the word of God. We can give the word of God when walking down the street and looking at flowers along the way and say, look at the beautiful things that God has made and God has created. We need to fill our hearts, and I should say the hearts of our children. We need to fill their hearts and their minds and their spirits and their souls and their understanding with what God is, has done, with what God is doing in their lives. How God has given them life to begin with. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That training that it talks about is dedication. 
It is dedicating our children in the way that they should go, which is in the Word of God. Even Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What is the most nurturing and admonishing thing of the Lord but God's Word? We are to be those good influences and godly influences. Not just good, but godly. This is one of those take-home things right here, right now. We need to get back to Terra, okay? So we've got to get going here. We find something interesting in the last two verses of Genesis 11. Let's look at those, verses 31 and 32. It says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his, son's, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees. Notice this. Terah took Abram his son to go into the land of Canaan. Isn't that an interesting thing? Based on what we studied last week. But don't get ahead yet. Let's read this. And they came unto Haran. And dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years. But look at this last phrase. And Terah, which means delay, by the way. And Terah died in Haran. Which, which literally means barren and parched. As we discovered last time. Abram more than likely received his calling from the Lord while in Ur of the Chaldees and received it again in Haran. He spent anywhere from 15 to 25 years in Haran. But God, who is going to be faithful to what he calls and what he wants to do, didn't give up on Abram, but he spoke to him again. And we, we realize that from Haran, Abram led his people to, the, to Canaan. And so this is fitting the situation here. And what we just read here in verse 31, Terah is mentioned as taking the family from Ur. Not Abram, but Terah. Why? Well, simply because Terah was the patriarch of the family. But he was, in fact, going with Abram. Why? Because it was Abraham who received the call. Not Terah. Yet, because he was the patriarch of the family, he has given, you know, the, the, uh, the lead here. He took Abram, his son. It is for us to realize that at some point, Abraham receives the call of God. He has to tell his father, God spoke to me, the one true God of Israel. Which hasn't existed yet, but I'm, so you guys will know. But Israel's coming, but not quite yet. But the one true God has spoken to me. And he's called us out of this land. What's interesting is that Tara says, let's go. But now look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10 say this. It says, by faith, Abraham. Abraham was the one who had the faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have, should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He obeyed God's call. Out of Haran. He obeyed God's call. And then it says he went out not knowing whither he went. They got everything packed up. Just like the Beverly Hillbillies, if you remember. Just trying to see if you're awake. And they, they packed this whole thing up, you know, and they were ready to go. Where are we going? I don't know. Didn't God tell you? Yeah, He told me, go. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go. Where? I don't know. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. You know, whatever. He didn't know, but He went. That's faith, folks. Abraham had spoken to God, and God had spoken to him. And notice in verse 9, it says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles which are tents uh, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was not only looking for a promised land here, he was given a promise of a land of eternity. A land of eternal parameters. The heaven of God. Because we have to go beyond just what we see in this life. God has given us a greater promise. So from God's perspective, Terah went with his son, Abram. And yet Terah serves as a reminder. Don't miss this. Terah serves as a reminder of those who only go so far with God and then stop short of the goal, which in this case was and is the promised land. Terah is a type of those who go only so far with God. How far are you with God, folks? They got as far as Haran. Haran, named after Terah's son who had died in the presence of his father in Ur. Certainly this town or city was a memorial for his departed son. But they settled there. They didn't go on. They were supposed to go to Canaan, but they settled in Haran. And listen, the, the land may have been beautiful. It might have been fruitful. It might have been everything you wanted in this life. But it was spiritually barren. And it was spiritually dry. And that's why it was symbolically called Haran. Parched, dry, barren. When one begins the journey of following Jesus Christ, when one begins the journey of following Christ, the goal is the promised land with the understanding that we have the assurance of arriving because of the person and work of Jesus Christ to all who believe in Him. That promise is to all who believe. We have the assurance of arriving at the promised land. But a number of believers settle in Haran. Many are just professing believers. But there are some who truly have confessed Christ, but they've only settled for things less than what God has given. People are settling in Haran today. Why? 
Listen, we fatigue from the journey sometimes. We fatigue from the journey. There's so many pitfalls. There's so many things we have to deal with in this life. How many times do the the apostles in the writings of the New Testament tell us not to grow weary in doing good, not to grow weary? We're, we're, We're on our way. We're there. God's your strength. Don't forget that. God's your strength on this journey. We're not stopping yet. There's no reason to stop here because this isn't home. But people get fatigued from the journey. Some of us say, oh, listen, we're just growing old now. Well, guess what? Every day all of us here are getting old. Don't get mad at me for saying that to you. I know, you, you don't look old. You don't. You don't look. You know what? Every believer in Jesus Christ has a newness of life. Whereas Paul had said in Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen, he says, "We are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new." Folks, that says that no matter what happens to these bodies, the older we get, the grayer we might get, the more wrinkly we might get. Listen, that's just the way it is living here on this earth. But the fact is, here, in the heart, and in the spirit that God has given us, and where He meets us, we're not old. We're eternal beings. But you see how this journey sometimes can make us feel like we're getting old, and we're growing old, and we've become disillusioned with a long and harsh sojourn. You think it's hard here, folks, in this country? Try to be a Christian where they are being killed for being Christians. Try that. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. Well, maybe I am a little. But I want you to think in real, in real terms. We set up more comforts for ourselves. Not sure how far away the promised land is. That's why even the scriptures tell us, oh, we get to a point where we say, where where is the promise of the Lord's coming? Uh, We thought he was coming in the 70s. And some of us thought he was coming in the 80s. And others said he was coming in the 90s. And some said he was coming back in October. He didn't come. Where's the promise of his coming? Well, I might as well just start settling in here. In Haran. And when you take that attitude, you begin to show how parched and dry your spirit is because you haven't continued on in the journey with Christ. We grow comfortable, short of the land, satisfied with Haran. Don't be satisfied with Haran. I'm going to make a statement here. I want you to listen very carefully to it. We don't lose faith as much as we settle for less than what the Lord desires to give us. That's the problem. We don't lose faith as much as we settle for less than what the Lord desires to give us. Quit settling for less. God has given us much more. Read His Word. Believe His Word. 
Trust in His Word. Trust in what He has laid out before us about His coming again. That's why Paul said in Titus, looking for the blessed hope. Not only living our lives here right before Him, but looking for the blessed hope. He's coming again. What are we looking for if we only settle in Haran? I want you to think of the words of Jesus to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verses 2 through 5. Listen to these words. Jesus speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the first church he addresses is the church of Ephesus. And he says to them, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. I mean, this was a working church. This was a laboring church. They were an organization. They were a well-oiled machine. They had some grasp of the spiritual morality that a church in that time should have had. They couldn't bear those who were evil. He goes on and he says, And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So they had some understanding of the Word of God and they applied that to testing false prophets. And when they found them to be lacking or, 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 or uh, just not uh, true apostles, they, they called them out as liars. In verse 3, Jesus says to them, And has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Which, which, which uh, speaks about their, uh, their, their work in the very midst of the persecution that they were going through in their own city. They were an organization. And they had their works. But look at verse 4. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now, a lot of people misquote this, and they say that, that uh, Jesus said that thou hast lost your, thy first love. Doesn't say that, does it? How many of us lose things? We don't lose them on purpose, do we? Those of you that are just starting out driving your cars, you know, and you have your new car that someone gave you, and you got the keys, and you just love driving your new car. But when you lose your car keys, what happens? You tear your whole house up. You'd wish you had gotten one of those things that you clap, clap on, clap off things. You know, try to find your keys. Give it its own, give it its own phone number and dial it. Where are you? You know, we're ringing. You lost your keys. When you find it, oh, you're so relieved. You didn't lose your first love. You left your first love. Do you know what that implies? A choice we sometimes make. We get so busy for God, we forget to spend time with God. We get so busy for Christ, we forget to spend time with Christ. The good thing is that we can come back. Because Jesus says to them, Remember then, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember where you left me. And repent, turn back. And do the first works again. Love me. Because I love you. Do what you do for me because it's, it's something you do out of love, not because it's just some obligation that you do. 
People sometimes think they're pleasing God by doing things out of obligation. God questioned Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? That's the question to us if we've left our first love. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. That's what he said to Peter. Do you love me? He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee and quickly and will remove thy, candle, thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The menorah, the seven candle candlestick. The candle of Ephesus was removed. There is no church of Ephesus any longer. It was removed. When we leave, we leave the path of the journey toward our goal. But let me tell you that the goal is not a place, but a person. The goal is not a place, but a person. I want you to hear the words of Jesus to to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He says to them in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Yes, he goes to prepare a place for us. And then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. But notice what he says, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am. Does the place matter now? It doesn't matter. What matters is that we be with him. And we can be with him right now. As a matter of fact, when you leave this place, He goes with you. Do you cherish that time? Do you cherish those moments? I hope you do, because He loves you. So much so that He says, when I come back for you, I want you to be where I'm at. I know that's not good English, but that's, you know, you know where I is, where I, you know, where I am, you know. That's where I am. That's where I want you to be, with me. When David was in the barren and dry wilderness of Judah, he composed this psalm, Psalm 63. Let me read a portion of it to you. Oh God, thou art my God. Listen, how how personal is that? That's pretty personal. There are people today who say, oh, you you evangelical Christians that tell people that you're here to have a personal relationship with God. No, that's really not what the Bible says. Oh yeah, well go ask David how personal it is. He says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. And that doesn't mean just early in the day. That means earnestly. It means with all my heart. Well, certainly when you, as soon as your eyes open, that's when you need to seek the Lord. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. Notice, he's not thirsting for a place. He's thirsting for a person. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. 
to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. God's mercies are better than the life that we're living. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Satisfied with whom? With him. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings I will rejoice. But notice verse 8. Take this home with you. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. I have to ask you this question. What does your soul follow hard after right now, today? Are you following hard after places or things or football teams? Or three-course meals? Because I know some of you think about lunch. What are you following hard after right now? David said, My soul followeth hard after thee. Following the footsteps of faith leads us not so much to a place, but to the person of Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, the promised seed, the seed of the woman, where, where, where God even said directly to the serpent who had caused all of this sin. In Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put my enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Listen, why did Jesus come? Based on that, 1 John 3, verse 8, John said this. The second part of the verse, he said, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. That's one of the reasons for the season, as it were. That in his coming to die in our place for our sins, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Is there any better reason then for us to follow hard after Him? Not a place, but a person. To have a heart that is committed totally and completely to Him who loved us with an everlasting love, who loves us even still in spite of us. Now I can ask the question that refers back to what Jesus said in that parable. Will Jesus find faith when he returns? My question to you is, when Jesus returns, will he find faith in your hearts? Will he find that you are going to trust him and believe in him and have faith in him and depend upon him and and commit yourself to him and and, and build up confidence in your heart toward Jesus Christ? When he returns, will you have that confidence in your heart? Or will you, grow, will you grow weary? Because you're settling in Haran. Don't settle in Haran. Continue on in the journey that God has given you toward Christ. He's already come. If you believe in Him, He's already seated you in heavenly places in Christ. Read the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And yet He tells us, Look for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ.
keep looking up. But you have to decide to get out of Haran or Haran and move on. Let's pray.